the creature in the wall has returned. Its tapping is louder this time. And there's a strange rhythm to it. I know now that it is a language, for I can understand it when I sleep. It wants me to join it on the other side. It tells me that it's time. It's time to embrace the void. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. This is episode three of Embrace the Void. I'm Aaron. And I'm GW. And we're here to spread the love that only annihilation of the self can bring. You know, much like The Void, our baby podcast is now careening into dimensions unknown. From here on out, we'll be releasing episodes about every other week. So with that brief moment that we tiny specks of Stardust get to share, let's have some fun, starting with some Void news. All right. So first up tonight, we're, uh, you wanted to talk about fake news versus real news. So I suggested we talk about a story that is both fake news and real news. Uh, so we're going to start off with the wiretapping story. Ooh, that Our, dichotomy. Yeah, right? This, this is a horrible story and therefore perfect for us to get things rolling because it takes garbage that is completely fake, picked up by the president, our void crab in chief, absorbed <laughs> through his various carapaces, and then exuded onto Twitter in such a way that, like, a char- he charged or accused our previous president of a serious crime. Let's okay. I, I want to hold on for a second. So here's something that's amazing, right? When Obama got into office, everyone started making up all of these stories. He was Kenyan. He was Muslim. He I don't know twiddled his thumbs and put one in his butthole or something. I don't know. The, right. The thing I was like, all right, he's out of office now. We have a new president. So there's going to be no more like oh my gosh, Obama's going to take my guns bullshit, right? right? And like, just when you think it's fine and he's kicked up his heels and played a little golf, this bullshit comes out. Yeah, and this goes along with this uh, series of claims that are being made by places like Breitbart that Obama is setting up a shadow government and is engaged in this shadow coup. And this is unfortunately the things that our president is reading. And because he's the president, he then tweets it and he he has then accused the FBI and a former president of a crime. It's not just like trolling. It used to just be trolling, right? He was a private citizen who said, ha, 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 our president isn't really an American. And everyone said, oh, my God, you're a terrible human being. And it didn't matter. But now we have people like Congress saying we can't you can't delete those tweets, Donald Trump. Those are historically important tweets. And those historically important tweets are Donald Trump accusing our president, a former president, of doing something horribly illegal, like a serious crime. And here's here's what's fascinating is that when a president would say something, it had weight, right? I, I use the past right. tense, had. And, right. and by weight, I mean that the words were heavy enough and had to be accountable, that presidents have always been very particular with their words and what they say. It's why we even have like a press secretary, right? They represent that sort of voice of the president. And anything that they say should be held under scrutiny, right? And it should be, right? Despite who it is. Doesn't matter if it's Obama, doesn't matter if it's Trump, it doesn't matter. Because it's this 140 character thing, there's no chance for a follow-up question. And that's been like disrupting this whole uh, uh, invisible fourth branch of our government to not be able to do its goddamn job. Yeah, that's the the. This is why this is really perfect void news. Is because not only has he done something horrible on Twitter, and not only is it going to be like recorded in the annals of history for all time, but it's also not going to fucking matter. Like, there's going to be zero consequences for this out- egregious violation of of reasonable behavior because we're going to move on to we're going to move on to the healthcare fight like you know Cong- like I keep reading articles about uh, uh, Congress saying oh you have to present evidence but when yeah. they get to the point in the article where it's supposed to say or what there's no more article the article's over there's no more because- or 
because there's nothing they can do. They have to move on to the healthcare debate. And this is going to fall. Like I saw Spitzer was on television today, walking this back to like, well, some surveillance was going on. And that equates to accusing Obama of requiring the FBI to wild wiretap his political opponents. And like, that's what's going to happen. They're going to walk it back. It's not going to matter. And like you said, the president's words are no longer going to have meaning. They're not going to have value anymore. And the, the thing that's really fascinating is that Kellyanne Conway still has not been investigated or prosecuted. To my knowledge, there's nothing being done about her literally breaking the law on yeah. air. Oh, no. I mean, something's been done. The Ethics Commission sent another letter saying, are you really not going to, like, in any way censure her? And the White House, to my knowledge, has done nothing in response. But, you know, like, again, there's no lever in place to make them do anything. And let's also, let's also, like, be fair here for a second. Like, any liberals that are listening, who gives a shit if she's kneeling on a couch? That shit doesn't matter. Like, right, great, right. she kneeled on a couch. Is it disrespectful? Yes. Does it fucking matter? Does it affect me? No. It doesn't, fu- it doesn't affect me in any way. I'm sorry. I'm really emotional about all this. No. And, like, you know, there's a theory at least that, like, enough of these things will eventually pile up. You know, some of our friends on, on opening arguments and whatnot have the view that, all of these things build a you know a way up towards a mountain that eventually he's going to fall off of, um, and I think that's possible. Like I think eventually there might be some sort of collapse, but I think the amount of damage that's going to be done to the office, to respectability, to discourse, and here's another big problem, right? So Donald Trump has said this is the case, right? Thirty percent of the country, as far as we know, believes everything he says and is never going to be disabused of this notion. So now that belief is out there, that that group of people who I think we can reasonably call a cult of personality will never be disabused of the notion that Obama is engaged in a shadow coup. So even if Donald Trump does get brought down, it's going to just fuel their beliefs that this is all part of this shadow coup conspiracy theory. Um, yeah, so I think that, you know, we've you've nailed the, the key problem of this, which is that, like, first off, the damage is already done. Like, the believability of the office is degra- degrading by the day. And, like, every time they have to walk back something absurd that he says on Twitter, everyone just tunes him out a little more and tunes out the government a little more. And there's a lot of arguments going on out there that people think that, this is just part of a strategy to further destabilize general belief that government can ever be effective. Yeah. And so here's, here's, I think there's a small glimmer of hope and that small glimmer of hope is this, what I, I'm going to call it Trump care. Some people call it Ryan care, but we're going to sort of revisit that in a second. But I think that there's a small shadow of, of hope because there are Republicans in Congress who aren't really happy with the way things are going. So I'm hoping that uh, uh, that this might be the breaking point, at least to de- destabilize the sort of Trump train that all of these conservatives jumped on just to be elected. That this might be sort of that breaking point because... Uh, as we're going to hear in a little bit uh, with a really great interview, the conservatives jumped on Trump early on, but now they're hearing this new plan by the GOP. And in their regard, in a lot of conservatives' regard, it is uh, too far and too generous and too much like the ACA. So let's, uh, let's not take our word for it. Let's hear from someone who's actually an expert on the subject. Yes, I'm glad I, I heard that you have a very exciting interview with a good friend of yours who knows a fair amount about this. So uh, I will um, step back. And otherwise, I wanted to point out that this is really in our wheelhouse. Um, I found this quote from Paul Krugman that describes the plan as uh, the awfulness is almost surreal. And uh, since surreal awfulness is really what we do here, I'm excited that we've got this. Um, large-scale interviews. This is our first interview, so let's hear it. So, Tim, uh, could you uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm the Associate Director of State Policy for the National Organization for Rare Disorders and an MPH candidate, a Master's of Public Health candidate at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Oh, that's pretty cool. How, How long have you been involved in public health? For about nine years now, um, I got started 
in HIV policy work out of college back in 2006, 2007, and have done health policy ever since. Oh, great. Uh, is there a specific reason you have a passion for it? You know, I was always interested in politics and policy. I kind of just through my work with the AIDS Healthcare Foundation out of college, I really kind of developed a passion for public health, and that's kind of been with me ever since. That's great. So uh, I'm hoping to sort of talk to you about uh, the thing that's on a lot of people's mind, which is uh, GOP's uh, American Healthcare Act. Um, so before we sort of really get into it, I'm, I'm wondering from your perspective, should we call it Trump care or should we call it Ryan care? That's an interesting question. I think, you know, in the campaign, Trump has been, even through his inauguration, he was adamant that Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act has been a disaster for Americans who use it and Americans who don't. And he has been pledged that his replacement or that what the Republican Party, of which he is the head of, will be better, will cover more people at a lower cost. So, yeah, I think it's fair to call it Trump care. I think it's fair to call it Ryan care. Uh, as president, you know, anything, you know, he has to own it eventually. So I, I think either is fair. I tended not to like the idea of you know, Obamacare originally started out as kind of a derogatory term for conservatives. Right. So yeah. I tried, I tend not to like the idea of, you know, using those things at all. Uh, but yeah, I think it's fair. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, the sad part is that it works, right? You know, there was that uh, group of folks that was that were asked, uh, uh, "What do you think of Obamacare and what do you think of American Care Act?" And they're like, "Oh, I hate Obamacare, but I love the ACA." Yeah, great. So let me ask you this: what uh, What's the difference between the American Health Care Act and the Affordable Care Act? The difference. So the key differences are how I mean, they both provide or attempt to provide coverage for a population that was had previously had previous difficulty paying for health insurance on their own. So this would be, I mean, most people in the United States get health care coverage through their employer. In addition to that, persons over 65 get health care through Medicare and persons of low income get health care through state Medicaid's programs. And then there's other people who are disabled have other kind of good care varieties programs. So one of the main focuses of the ACR, I mean, it's, its key selling point is an expansion of insurance coverage for people that previously could not access it. And, you know, in our current system, most people get health, health insurance either through Medicare because they're over age 65 or through their employer, employer-based health insurance, which most, you know, working adults get covers through, or if they're low income, they get it through state Medicaid programs. However, there's this kind of subset of a population, um, you know, maybe as many as 50 million people who before ACA were not able to access health insurance coverage, either because they weren't poor enough for Medicaid, they weren't 65, they didn't have employer-based coverage. And so the ACA created a new program to allow them to purchase insurance that was subsidized, uh, tax subsidized by the federal government. That's essentially what the Obamacare exchanges were, um, gotcha. and it's set clear rules for this population. And so, under that expansion, you know, I think at least twenty million pe more people have been able to buy private insurance. And the the American Healthcare Act fundamentally addresses that part of the ACA, um, and it does it by changing the way subsidies to buy insurance are allocated. So under the Obamacare and the ACA, the subsidies were provided by the federal government based on income. And so if you had less money, you were given more money to buy insurance. Um, in addition to that, there were, well, I'll touch on that in a minute. So, and, and, under, and is that, and so, I'm sorry, just to be clear, so it's also part of that in terms of what the ACA did was do things like uh, uh, prevent healthcare providers from denying people service because of pre-existing conditions and stuff like that? Yeah, I like to think of the ACA as kind of something that exists in three buckets. One bucket is the creation of these health care exchanges for people to buy insurance. The One the bucket was the expansion of Medicaid programs to kind of increase coverage. And the final bucket of the ACA was all these new rules and changes to health care that applied to everyone. So like the pre-existing condition ban was part of that. 
There's also a really important one, which is often overlooked, is a ban on lifetime limits. So prior to ACA, you could an insurance company could cap their spending on you once you reach a certain threshold of medical care, even if you still paid for your insurance. That's oh. no longer the case under the ACA, and that's really beneficial for people who are incredibly sick because you know lifetime limits can be hit quicker than you think. Um, things like the the rating for the cost of insurance. So under ACA, for everyone, um, older people and sicker people, particularly older people, can only be charged three times the amount of younger people. So that made younger people's insurance a little bit more expensive, but that, at the benefit of it was that people who are older and tend to need more insurance, they could afford it at a little bit better rate. So under the American Health Care Act, the Ryan Trump plan, the way in which those subsidies are provided for the, for the purchase of insurance changed a bit. So as I mentioned, the ACA did subsidies based on income. So if you made less money, you got more tax, subs, tax assistance to purchase insurance. Under the Ryan plan, the assistance is based on age. So what that ends up meaning is that the younger you are, the more money you will get to help purchase insurance. The older you are, the less money you will get to help purchase insurance. And that seems like like uh, sort of a back-asswards way of looking at it, wouldn't it? Because for folks who are younger, they uh, won't need as much coverage only because younger people are generally not as sick, right? Generally, yes. I mean, there's, it's, this is an, an idea. I mean, the general way insurance works is that healthy people pay for it for sick people. Right. You know, that's, why, that's how insurance companies are profitable is that you know, they have enough people paying into it who don't use the coverage that they can afford to pay the claims on people who do. Right. I that, think, and you know, that's, the, that's the way that insurance was invented in the first place, right? It was, uh, uh, it was really, really expensive and really risky to send a ship out to go to deliver goods to trading or whatever. And you would uh, uh, be able to pay into this fund that if uh, everything went fine and your ship got to its destination, then uh, uh, you paid this money and, and you didn't get anything back. But if you know it got pirated or it blew up or you know people stole it or whatever, a lot of stuff would happen. Uh, part of that uh, uh, money that you spent for your ship would get reimbursed, and so it was all you know. Uh, relatively speaking, most ships uh, didn't suffer casualties or didn't get uh, sunk or didn't get pirated or something. And so it was sort of beneficial for the whole to do that, right? Precisely. Um, and in, in within the context of, of health insurance, there, not to, to, to rain on your ship analogy, um, but there's another issue with one of the kind of fundamental challenges of, the, of Obamacare and Affordable Care Act and something that you know, the, the law as it was written is not perfect, and there's a developed issues within it that people have needed to address. But one of the main core problems or one of the main things in general with health insurance that people try to address is that how do you get younger people who are healthier to buy into it? Right. One of the challenges the ACA faced was that it did not it not did not necessarily incentivize younger people enough to pay into health insurance. They would rather just deal with the tax penalty that exists, the individual mandate, rather than have to deal with the insurance. And so that created a situation where under the ACA, the risk pooling tended to be more subsidized people who wanted that care, and that kind of affected costs a little bit. Right. So um, I, I'd like to continue on this trend a little bit about, about uh, poking at the ACA, because I think it's fair to be as objective as possible. You know, the GOP does a lot of claims talking about how premiums have gone up. Is that really an accurate statement? Yes. Um, the premiums have gone up. And there's a lot of reasons for that in general because premiums always go up. You know, it, it's triggered by things like inflation and other factors. But, yeah, premiums have gone up. And part of the reason for that is that the population covered by ACA is not as young and healthy as they would like, um, as I mentioned before. The issue here, I mean, this is like kind of the, the, the fundamental, I like to call it hypocrisy, but the fundamental issue here about GOP critiques of the ACA is that they have spent a good deal of the last three or four years, especially during the campaign, attacking on the ACA on the fact that its premiums were too high, its deductibles were too high, its out-of-pocket costs were too high, which for many people, those were all legitimate problems. But sure. nothing in the GOP plan proposes to do anything about that. 
So, I mean, <laughs> and, and in general, and in general, Republicans and conservatives, many conservatives' belief about health care is that in order to generate the effect of the private market, people, consumers of health care need to have more, quote unquote, skin in the game. So Republicans believe that someone having to pay more for their health care is a good thing, and that incentivizes competition and better negotiation of rates. And so the thing that they think is good uh, is also the thing that they attack Obamacare for the, mo- the most for. So that ended up being a situation which has caused kind of the current political dynamic where they made a lot of promises that they had no intention of addressing or fulfilling. And it is, in fact, completely counter to their beliefs about health care to fulfill those promises. So, uh, so help me understand, uh, you know, let's pretend that I was a Trump voter, right? A, a typical Trump voter, right? I've heard, I've heard some of uh, the criticisms about uh, Trump care, about Ryan care, that a big number of their constituents, the people that have voted for them, are going to hurt the most from uh, the American Health Care Act. Is that, a, is that a fair statement as well? I mean, I, I hate to be so blanket about it, but I think there is some analysis out there. Uh, I believe the Commonwealth Fund did some of this and Kaiser Family Foundation did some of this. Under the American Health Care Act, the GOP replacement proposal, people who are older and people who live in rural areas, just given the nature of how insurance markets work, are going to likely pay more than they would have under the ACA. And so if you can, I don't know the demographics of who voted, but I think typically older white Americans in less urban areas were Trump voters at those people stand to pay more for health insurance than they probably previously would have under the uh, under Obamacare, assuming that they don't have an, a, a, an employer-sponsored plan. And I right. think another consideration in all this is that there there is a chance that certain Republican proposals for health care could lower rates overall. The reason those rates will likely go down is because there's less mandates and less coverage overall that they're getting. So yes... You would be paying less, but you will be paying for le- paying for less as well. Right. And I was hearing um, uh, there's this like New York Times podcast that I listened to, and they had on uh, an expert. I I can't for the life of me remember her name, but she was saying that there's going to also be there's an incentive in the GOP bill, and please correct me if I'm wrong about this, but there's an incentive in the bill that to try to keep people from staying with their uh, health insurance, whatever that is. And that if you leave or have a lapse of time, let's say you lose your job or whatever, and you don't pay for a couple of months and you want to buy new insurance, that you're going to be paying a much higher premium than if you had stayed in the whole time. And that is supposed to be an incentive for people to stay and continue to pay. Yeah. So that, that is accurate. And essentially this concept so the Republicans hated the idea and conservatives hated the idea of the individual mandate. They hated the idea of essentially forcing people to buy a product. Sure. Um, so they got rid of the individual mandate in their plan or their plan will get rid of the individual mandate. But under the, if the, the, but the plan also keeps all these other protections, such as the main one being the pre-existing protection, pre-existing condition protection. Mm-hmm. So if you have all these things that are going to allow – people with pre-existing conditions and other chronic ailments to buy insurance, you need to kind of have a way to force healthier people, younger, healthier people in particular, to buy this insurance. And so under the ACA, they they did that by doing a mandate. And there was a lot of criticisms that that mandate wasn't strong enough. The GOP proposal is this idea of continuous coverage, whereas I believe under the the proposed law, if you have a lapse of more than 60 days, you will pay 130% or 30% more mm-hmm. of, of the standard insurance rate. Um, and But there's a couple issues with that. One is that there's lots of reasons people have lapses as insurance coverage. So sure. people who change jobs tend to have lapses. People who actually, frankly, get sick and need to use their insurance can't work anymore and could, t- could possibly have a lapse. Right. It's um, catch-22. Yeah. And so the problem with that idea is that, is it a good enough incentive for people to buy insurance? And also, is it taken into account people with circumstances that they would be forced out of their insurance uh, for factors beyond their control? In addition, like that's that all being said, there's another recent criticism of this proposal 
So in order for it to not be seen so punitive, Republicans capped their rate hike at 130% of the standard rate for insurance. Some people are believing, especially if you're young, like if you're lapsed in coverage and you have to pay for, you have to pay a higher rate anyway when you get back into the coverage pool, a lot of people, they assume, will just wait till they get sick. Right. Because you're going to have to pay the fee anyway, so might as well not pay it until you need it. And that, again, is a problem for insurance because you want, the again, the point of all of this is that you want those younger, healthier people to stay in coverage so that it buoys the entire system. Sure, sure. So I know another thing that they are planning on doing is that the current proposed bill is sort of phase one. Uh, and I'm uh, sort of curious to know from your perspective, is doing this in multiple parts, does that have merit? Or do you think that that is sort of a disastrous way of going about it? Um, well, it's it's allegedly phase one. I think there's no... <laughs> Good point. Good point. Yeah, there's evidence. I mean, there's other things conservatives want to do with healthcare. Namely, they want to really alter how Medicaid is run and funded to states. I mean, right now, there is no like second bill waiting in the wings to that is phase two. I think one of the things we saw when this bill was released is that a lot of conservatives, a lot of conservatives are unhappy with it because they feel it's too generous. It's too much like the ACA. And so in particular, they didn't like the fact that this bill, at least at the outset, didn't repeal the expansion of Medicaid. And so I think Trump mentioned our promise that the phase two deals with Medicaid. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of evidence that the things he promises don't necessarily come to fruition. But at the end, general, though, the idea of doing these things as phases is not necessarily the worst idea. I think one of the things, one of the criticisms during the passage of the Affordable Care Act was that it should have been done more piecemeal um, and that get some of the easy, more political feasible things out of the way first, such as the, the pre-existing condition protections, the stay on your parents' plan to 26, a deal with the more- Your bucket number three. Yes. Um, but however, you know, if you only pass the politically feasible things, it makes it even more harder to pass the non-politically feasible things. So I think there's arguments both ways. It's not inherently a dumb idea. Sure. Um, but it's, but again, there's no proof that there's another phase coming to this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a fair point. So, um, in, in all things being fair, is there anything that you would consider uh, uh, either a good idea or any good part of the American Care Act that you can point to? I mean, in general, it's, I guess, people in health policy work who are general supportive are generally supportive of expanded health care coverage and, and robust health care coverage, like the fact that it is not as bad as the alternatives. Um, which would have been kind of a complete dismantling and, and destruction of the Affordable Care Act. I mean, if you if you compare the American Health Care Act to what we had pre-Obamacare, it's better than that, but it is worse than sure. the ACA as a coverage expansion and a, and a health care protection plan. Right. It's, it's like one of the ideas that, at least, you know, for, for from my perspective, as someone who is not an expert in, in this area at all, the allowing people to buy uh, insurance across state lines, uh, to me, sounds like it has merit, um, or at least uh, could be driving costs down. No, that, that, increases that idea is crap. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> um, please tell me how. No, I mean, the problem with selling insurance across state lines is that it becomes a race to the bottom because no one, no plan is incentivized unless of course you assume that there are very strong, robust federal mandates on what that insurance should look like. So if there are no, so under the current model though, if you allow people to sell across state lines, you're going to have an insurer coming into a market who could just design a plan that's cheaper and pick off all the young people on that market and then existing insurers essentially get stuck with all the older, sicker people, and that's not financially viable. Gotcha. So essentially, the, the across state lines proposal is it creates kind of a, a death spiral, whereas the market within a state will plummet, and anyone could uh, insurers will constantly be poaching each other off by offering less robust 
plans and less coverage are designing their things to pick off a segment of the population that they want and not providing the coverage that's needed for people who are less desirable. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about any of that. So yeah, I mean, in general insurers hate the idea generally because they don't want to have that out of state competition. Um, Most health policy wonks that I know of are, are pay attention to think it's a dumb idea. It sounds good. Um, but it's been largely dismissed because on, a, on an actual implementation basis, it won't work. Sure. So um, I'm curious to know, sort of moving away from both of these, uh, uh, I have a couple of questions related to what do you think is sort of a better idea in general. Um, like specifically, I'm wondering uh, what are your opinions about um, having uh, health care more focused on preventative care as opposed to reactive care? I think, yeah, more focus on prevention is always a good thing. But at the same time, people will always be sick. I mean, and the, the work I do with the National Organization for Rare Disorders, the population that we work with, the people, the people that we represent, the vast majority of them have inherited genetic disorders. And so there's nothing you, you could do preventatively to prevent them from having the need for healthcare services. Uh, but however... Well, at this point, that that being said, that being until, said, until science, yeah, that being said, <laughs> however, um, the majority of healthcare costs in this country and the leading causes of death and illness are completely preventable. When you think of things like congestive heart failure, um, high cholesterol, diabetes, a lot of these things are driven by lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, there there is absolute there absolutely should be a bigger focus on prevention. And that's one of the things the ACA did that the American Healthcare Act pulls away is the ACA had very strong requirements for preventative services within insurance plans. So you may have noticed like when you under the ACA, you have a yearly physical that's free. That's a preventative type of care. Certain immunizations are free. Um, access to certain other preventative services like family planning and, and, and contraception were intended to be free. Uh, the American Health Care Act pulls away a lot of that stuff. So there, there is definitely a need for a focus, and I think we could stand to have an increased focus on preventative health care. Um, but that's also the under our, the current structure of our health care system that could be difficult to do because it may end up with certain mandates that are because the majority of people are, get care through their employer. You may have certain prevention mandates being mandated by your employer. Most recently, there was a news story that popped up about employers demanding more genetic screening of their workforce because it would help them be healthier and preventative in acts of preventative care. So the idea behind that is if you know what people are predisposed to genetically, you can prevent the onset of some of those disorders. But you know that gets an idea of who has your genetic information. And if your employer mandating, right. like if under preventative care model, is your employer mandating that you know you take the stairs? Is your employer mandating what you eat? Uh, things like that. So it's a very it's it's a very kind of tricky issue. But yeah, it, your basic point though, more preventative care would be better. So then, uh, in your opinion, how do you think that uh, we reduce cost? Right, because that's like always the biggest. Uh, you know, everyone wants to run everything as a business model nowadays. And so, uh, um, although I disagree with running healthcare as a, a, a profit motive, what, in your opinion, would be a way that we could reduce cost? I mean, the, the issue with cost tends to fall along incentives. And so, the ACA actually started to do a little bit of work in this area. So, for example, one of the things it did was changed the way hospitals are paid, especially under Medicare. So previously, hospitals would be paid based on just visits, almost in a fee-for-service model, where they provide this unit of care, they get paid for it. Under the ACA, they changed that model so that you were actually, hospitals were paid better and not paid more. For the more times you came back, they're paid based on your health outcomes a little bit more. That's one way to change the incentives. Um, in general, the United States suffers from a massive fragmentation of its healthcare system and a lack of kind of centralization of price negotiation and the abil- inability to implement policies that could deal with costs, issues, and inefficiencies within the system. Um, 
namely the fact that when your healthcare system is so fragmented, you end up having a little bit of more spending on overhead than you would in a less fragmented system. Can you elaborate on what you mean by fragmented? So fragmented being that like, well, just for example, I'm going to name off a list of federal agencies which run and provide healthcare services in, almost independent of each other. The Department of Veterans Affairs, the Ryan White HIV AIDS program, the Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, um, just to name a few. Those are just a few public payers that provide healthcare services, not to mention the employer-based private market, the non-employer-based private market. Uh, there's, there's a litany of them, of different payers in our healthcare system that by many times by law aren't allowed to pool with each other to make to negotiate prices or to control costs. Oh, so like uh, one of the things I think uh, uh, Bernie Sanders has talked a lot about is trying to push towards allowing for larger negotiations with the pharmaceutical industry to try to lower costs. So it's something like that. Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, although I think that the pharmaceutical cost issue, I mean, it's important, but it gets sometimes outsized attention. Um, but in general, yes, I mean, allowing for instance, states to pull together to negotiate rates are allowing, you know, having instead of having four or five different federal government programs to provide health insurance to different populations, bringing those together. So, for example, the Department of Veterans Affairs often gets better rates than Medicare, gets better rates than co coverage for uh, federal employees. There's just a lot of inefficiencies baked into the system that affects rate setting and costs. So there's kind of one last question I want to ask you about all of this, and that is uh, healthcare, uh, despite uh, um, Trump's preconceived notions, is complicated, right? And the pro yeah, that was, that was news to me actually. <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was easy, right? <laughs> uh, so I'm wondering, like, for someone who isn't in, you know studying this or spent the uh, their career sort of analyzing and understanding this uh, the healthcare systems. How how does an average person sort of navigate all of this? I think, you know, I mean, the old axiom is all politics is local. I think a lot can be said about healthcare too. All healthcare is local, even though that's fundamentally not true. But think about the issues you face in your own life accessing healthcare services, because if there are problems you encounter with the healthcare system, or there are problems you encounter with costs, it's most likely that those are symptoms of a broader, more systematic issue. And if you could better understand your own care, your own insurance, that could enable you to see the problems that exist system-wide. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. So um, is there anything that you're currently working on, uh, any legislation that you're trying to push or or whatnot? Yeah, I mean, my the organization that I work for and, and my role in state government affairs, we are actually focused on trying to address many of the gaps that existed in the ACA, kind of independent of this repeal process. On the gen on the federal level, we are pushing to make sure that all the, a lot of the core protections of the Affordable Care Act are put in place in any type of health care reform. And so we're doing a lot of work on pre-existing conditions. And I think the work in general of the healthcare advocacy community resulted in the AHCA not being as punitive as people thought it would be. But at the state level, you know, I'm doing a lot, a lot of work with patient protections to ensure that insurance at the state level provided, particularly provided through the healthcare exchanges of ACA, is as strong as possible and does not include many of the loopholes that health plans can use to deny people coverage. An example of that would be, so under the, the ACA, health plans can no longer discriminate on the basis of a pre-existing condition, but what they can do is alter their benefit design so that they don't cover your doctor or they don't cover the specific medication you need. Um, and so, right. and there's ways to prevent that. So one of the issues I work on is that requires that health plans cannot discriminate against certain classes of medications and that they have to have robust provider networks so that if you have insurance, you could actually see the doctor that is best suited to treat your condition. Oh, absolutely. Great. Uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Uh, all of this was super informative, and it's great to hear 
from the perspective of someone who is an expert and not just from random folks spouting stuff that they really don't understand. Yeah, I wouldn't call myself um, an expert quite yet, but I certainly have a, a deep understanding of this stuff. But thank you. <laughs> well, you're definitely, you definitely have your hands sort of in the cookie jar, so you sort of know what's going on in there a little bit more than, than me for sure. Yeah, maybe maybe hand in the the barrel of snakes. I don't know if I'd call it. That. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe maybe uh, um, making America great again is reducing the number of snakes. Yes. <laughs> well, awesome. Uh, thanks so much. Is there anything that um, any last thing you want to say, or something we didn't cover, or do you want to point people in a direction of stuff you're working on? You know, I we've we've talked a bit up on this podcast about how Trump people, Trump voters were misled or are misconstrued about what Trump actually wants to do with healthcare. I, I do think that there are several websites out there doing great reporting on that, in particular Vox.com, V as in Victor OX.com, and Sarah Cliff there has done amazing reporting on what the expectations of the Trump voter were for healthcare and how they're responding to the current developments in it. Oh, that's great to know. We'll definitely uh, link that in our show notes so that uh, people can take a look at that. All right, and we're back. That was awesome, G-Dubs. That was a great interview. Yeah, isn't Tim cute? Yeah, he's adorable. Um, definitely give him thanks. I was, I was sad that I couldn't be part of the interview, but you guys really nailed uh, so many of the key points that I wanted to hear about uh, when talking about. Is there anyone yeah. in particular you wanted to talk about? Um, I was really glad to hear some of the ones that haven't been as mainly highlighted. So like pre-existing conditions gets a lot of um, attention, but you haven't heard as much about lifetime caps. And he brought up that where you have individuals who, because they have chronic illness, they hit lifetime caps um, in, in how much coverage they can get. Right. And like if, if you think about that from like a biz, like purely business, this has nothing to do with uh, uh, health, right? Right. Uh, if someone has like a car, right? Fine. Like having a cap on how many claims you can make, like that makes business sense, right? Like right. I, I don't have really a problem with that, but like it's this whole profit motive in dealing with public health or people's health, I should say, and trying to like make a profit out of it. Yeah, and and you see that problem when you look at the different sort of um, fund allocations for private versus public, right? The big alternative to all of these options, right? You talked um, some in the interview about the sort of decentralization issue, right? If we had a centralized insurance system, for example, through a public option, you could reduce the cost of overhead. So I think Medicaid is functioning with like a you know, only a few percent in um, towards uh, overhead uh, for uh, employees management, that sort of thing. Whereas the average private place is something like 12%. Like these sorts of problems that you can deal with, but none of that is going to be addressed by the AHCA, right? Ryan Care is not going to solve any of those problems. And I think something that we should really hit is that the reason it's not going to solve those problems is because Paul Ryan thinks that the real problem is that insurance is evil and redistribution of wealth of any sort is immoral right. and tyrannical. And right, right. And let's go into that real quick, right? So yeah. Ryan does his little like presentation, his little like, look, I found this program. Uh, it's called PowerPoint, and it's you know I'm going to use a four three ratio because apparently it's 1996. And <laughs> I told my intern to make it pro. <laughs> <laughs> and so he 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 explains I'm going to paraphrase I don't remember the exact quote. He says like the problem with healthcare right now with Obamacare cuz he tried to say Obamacare as many times as he possibly fucking could. Sure. He's like the big problem is is that all the healthy people are paying for the sick people. So let's think about insurance for a second, right? So let's say that I don't know, 100 people have cars. Right, and they all pay insurance, which is supposed to be a if you get into an accident or something, uh, then you get financial help with that, right? So you pay into this pool. Like, let's be let's let's overestimate, right? So we have a hundred people; they each put in a hundred bucks a year, right? Which is not realistic. But sure. Let's just use easy numbers. Hundred people put a hundred dollars into this fund, right? So now we have ten thousand dollars, right? We have this bucket of money. Now let's just say. Again, we're going to overestimate. Let's say 10% of those people in one year get into an accident, right? Right. And each of those accidents is 100 bucks. Or let's just let's 
overestimate, right? 200 bucks, right? You're still only talking about $2,000 out of 8,000 or an 8,000 remaining. This is literally how insurance works. And trying yeah. to say that the problem with health insurance is that it is insurance. Okay. I actually would agree with that, except what the fuck you want to do has is like so polar opposite of actually working. And I think we can, we can make sense of that claim that he was making because Paul Ryan isn't dumb enough to not know how insurance works. I think he was conflating two things there. So what it sounded like he was saying was, and we, what the words he said was, the poor have to pay, or sorry, the healthy have to pay for the sick, right? Which is basic health insurance, you know, diffusion of um, uh, risk. But what he really was concerned about is that the rich have to pay more for the poor. That's the redistribution that they actually think is wrong, and you can see it in their plan. The rollbacks of the tax, um, the increased taxes on the wealthy to pay for Medicaid expansion and things like that, right? That's the stuff they think is really tyrannical. Yeah, the ability for these types of folks to compartmentalize baffles my brain. Like, I just don't understand how people cannot be consistent with their outrage. So that's that's my favorite phrase, right? It was uh, um, John Stewart when he was being interviewed by O'Reilly like a long time okay. ago, and sure. they were talking about uh, Common coming to visit the White House, and uh, um, he, you know he brought up a few other artists that had similar uh, issues that O'Reilly was bringing up, and he was like, "Just be consistent with your outrage. Like, if you don't like this, that's fine, but be consistent." Right, and this is you know, these days everyone likes to lob that claim at someone else. So part of the problem that means that this is not going to get better, and we're going to continue to hurdle deeper into the void, is because both sides have now learned that trick, and. Even if one side is more right that the other side is being inconsistent, there's no way to consistently nail people down on this very effectively. And so people can generally get by with being inconsistent as they want and say, oh, no, it's really the other side that's being inconsistent. Because, like, everything that you say about Donald Trump, I can tell you because I have conversations with, with conservative friends, they will have a response about how, you know, where was your outrage when Obama did something similar? Oh, I honestly haven't heard that. But like, like I'll use oh, myself I hear all the time. I use myself as an example. As an example, right? So recently, there was this fake news that went out. Right? I, as we both are, we're very much against fake news. And this fake news story came out, and I saw it, and it was like hot Mike uh, Paul Ryan caught. And so I watched the video, and I'm a sound designer and an engineer, so I have a master's degree in sound design. So I consider myself an expert when it comes to sound. And this is what I saw. Paul Ryan was at a podium doing a Q&A with the press. He answered the questions, and then he walked away. And then after a little while, you hear someone say, waste of my fucking time or something like that. Right. Me being an expert in sound, I watched that video. He was over 15 feet away from the mic. I can tell that he wasn't wearing a lapel mic or a body mic, that it was only the podium mic. And I can also tell by the quality of the sound. And so it was right. very clear that what happened, even though the camera doesn't show it, is that as people were exiting the stage, they were walking by the mic. And it's clear that it was someone else's voice. So I posted that and I said, me being consistent with my outrage, this is fake news. And I said, I, I disagree with Paul Ryan's politics, but I want everyone to know this is fake. And the reaction was? Oh, good stuff. Uh, a couple of conservative friends of mine were appreciative and a couple mm -hmm. liberal friends of mine were also appreciative. Uh, I didn't really mm -hmm. get any pushback uh, from stating that it was fake. Everyone basically saw it. And I wrote a, fa a fairly lengthy analysis of what I saw, what I observed, what I heard, and why it was fake. That's cool. I think with um, smaller situations like that, it is sometimes possible, especially when people don't have a lot of skin in the game to some extent where it's True. like, you know, it's not a, a huge situation that's blowing up. And so people are not making a big deal out of that. I think what seems likely that's going to happen to me with the healthcare stuff is that either all of this bad news will be sufficiently leveraged to scare off enough, you know, we need three or four Republican senators to, to not go through with this. Um, at which point, They'll either, I don't think that there's another compromise, but I don't think there's any compromise position they're going to offer that the Democrats will take short of 
throwing in a public option, which hasn't even been on the table as far as I know. If only. So I think, I think either the Republicans will manage to force it through, in which case horrible things will happen. And when those horrible things happen, the Republicans will tell their base that those things are happening because of the Democrats and their base will believe them. And, you know, everyone will continue to, to have their own confirmation biases. Okay, so for Void Hero of the Week, we're going to do something a little special this time. This is actually going to be a Lifetime Achievement Award that we reserve for special individuals who've made outstanding achievement in the field of making things much, much worse. La La Land? Is it La La Land? It is La La Land. Oh, wait, no, it's not La La Land. It's another person. It's, uh, it's Joseph. His name is Joseph. Oh, and the technic-colored fuck-me-overcoat? Yes, Joseph and the monochromatic because colors are gay <laughs> Nicolosi, uh, the far, the, the now dead father of modern conversion therapy and reparative therapy who died this week, uh, much to the internet's general sort of amusement. Uh, there was a lot of hope for many of us that because we know that, um, Joseph believed that you could simply, will yourself through enough work to, to be something other than what you are, that we hope that because there were so many family members who loved him desperately, that they would sit around shocking the body for several hours in the hopes that they could will him back to life. And let's, and let's like put this in a little bit of like void context. Like I made an argument a couple episodes ago that we weren't in the darkest of all timelines, but we're in a dark timeline. I think Sorry. this guy dying is is great example of us not being in the darkest timeline, right? Because he was he was such a shit face, like douche canoe, that him living in this world and still existing would have continued to be the worst of all possible. Yeah, timelines. but you can't just you know like you know, human beings die. You can't just claim that. See, here's the real reason that we are in fact in the darkest of all timelines is because here's an individual, right, who lived an entire life of torturing people and died a free man. Why? Right? Okay. I had this nice ice cream cone. You just knocked the ice cream like right off my ice cream cone. Why yeah. I just want that? you to understand like how bad this timeline in, right? So like this guy is the founder and president of NARTH, which is an association whose job it is to like wrap scientific writing around garbage philosophy about the fact that people can change from being gay. And like, these people are, are terrifying. This is like, they're wearing the skin of their victim. Like they're taking actual psychology, draping it over themselves, claiming that what they are offering up is medicine and what they're really offering is torture. Sounds like Scientology. Right. It is exactly like, well, no, wait, I shouldn't say it. I do not want to be sued, and so I am not going to claim that Scientology <laughs> definitely torture. I have heard from some other individuals, some people have said there might be some torture involved. I can neither I confirm nor deny I think maybe I saw a writing where someone made that claim that they right. overheard from someone else who possibly had Right. Meanwhile, I'm not aware that Narth is particularly litigious, and so I feel comfortable saying that what Joey and this organization have promoted over the years is essentially torture. And I think that we ought, we should give him a lifetime achievement award because a normal serial killer, right, the Dahmer type of serial killer, gets to kill what ten, maybe twenty people, torture them before the police bring them down or something like that. Whereas this guy, like. He made a lifetime of making it socially acceptable to torture people. Countless people were tortured because of this guy's views. Because yeah, he must have gotten up really early in the morning. Death, 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 lunch. Right, death, exactly. Death, afternoon tea, death, death, quick shower. Yep. And, and to this day, there are people in this organization who are claiming that this isn't, this isn't abusive. This is about giving people an option. And I want to, you know, I want to talk about this for a second, because when I have made fun of these people, I have gotten some pushback from individuals asking about uh, situations where someone really does actually want to stop being gay and whether we should give them that choice. And what I looked at, I actually went to the, the North site and was watching a couple of the testimonials. Of course, they have testimonials of people who claiming who are you know, no longer gay because of this stuff. There were some reoccurring themes. First of all, despite the fact that NARTH claims to be a secular organization, religion came up a lot. Okay. There was a oh, lot of like, I was feeling 
bad because I came from a strictly religious background. And then the second thing in the cases where I could understand where this, how this might actually be true were cases of sexual abuse or physical abuse, people who had been abused growing up in such a way that like the reality is the human sexuality is a very complex machine. And if you smash it, we don't fully understand it yet. Right. Right. And if you smash it with a hammer, it does weird things, right? And sometimes people who were, are straight and continue to be straight all along engage in behavior that they wouldn't have necessarily engaged in because of that abuse. And so then when that person goes into any form of therapy that addresses that abuse, one would think that um, if that behavior is not part of their normal sexuality, it would in fact go away. And there might be situations where that's the case. I can totally imagine a situation where a person is abused to the point of thinking they have a different sexuality and, and could be helped by a therapist to the point of having their original sexuality. I don't right. think that's a and, case of their sexuality and, changing though. And like, let's, let's yeah. not, I, I want to go back on that, right? Like part of the problem is, is that there's this assumption, which is currently what's happening with, uh, uh, transgender people that, Oh, they're only transgender because clearly there must've been some trauma earlier in their life, or they must've been abused, which is not always the case. Like there might right. be some cases. Absolutely. But there are also some cases of people being abused and then being perfectly fucking normal later. So, like, it's just not, like, you can conflate that or make that assumption, and it's yeah. 100% the wrong assumption. And then what happens is then you have people who are going around going, oh, uh, you're gay, so clearly you must have some mental problem, or clearly you have had some traumatic problem, and now you're a lesser. Go fuck yourself. Yeah, and, and that's the scary thing about the fact that they call it reparative therapy and the fact that they their most um, sort of largely promoted testimonials seem to center around these abuse sort of cases or cases where something bad happened to the individual. And like they describe that as being the prototypical gay person as someone who suffered something in their life that led them to engage in this sort of behavior. And and they claim they're not necessarily basing it in religion, though it does all often come to that. But whatever it's based in, I think the reality is that what they are doing is they're taking these rare cases. They're not rare. I mean, lots of horrible things happen to horrible, you know, to people. But they're taking those cases and conflating them with the vast number of cases of people actually just being gay, not as a result of abuse. And in those cases, all of the evidence suggests that people don't change. Right, and you they're can't also torture like, them straight. They're trying to draw these long lines of causality which don't exist. Like, like. It's this, it's again, like sort of what we were talking about before of confirmation bias and that they're not, it's not an actual scientific study if they're not going to look at all of the facts, right? Or if you're not going to look at all of the evidence together to draw your conclusions, right? If you're only going to look at this really, really small scope and go, oh, there's a snowball. That means climate change isn't fucking real. Again, go fuck yourself. Yeah. I mean, this certainly deserves a lot of go fuck yourself because what they are advocating is torture. And I've had people argue with me about, well, they don't use electroshock anymore. I can't find that to necessarily be the case. Certainly, like much like the alt-right, these individuals have rebranded themselves to give the impression that they are not anti-gay, that they are offering an alternative for individuals who want free choice. Like they're, they're wrapping all of this up in this free choice kind of view. But the reality is the people that are being described are being coerced into this sort of situation. I can't imagine a situation where a human being in a healthy, normal world would think I need to torture my gay away. There's just no, and whether it's, you know, they're, they're still doing aversion therapy. So whether it's noxious smells and and smell you know like aversion uh, association kind of stuff or they're doing right, electroshock right. whatever it is yeah whatever it is all you're doing is torturing the person into hating their own sexuality not changing it to some other kind of sexuality we want to give a special thanks to our very first patrons el deuterino jesse rabinowitz and the baby jesus reincarnated brenda goodman who have joined the ranks of our archons and will command our legions in the battles to come it seems fitting that they are our very first patrons as they bear much of the blame for these shenanigans so it's good to see them owning up to that thank you all so much for your support 
Thanks everyone for listening. Remember, if you want to reach out to us through the darkness, find us on Facebook or Twitter at ETVPod. You can also send us a message to voidpod at gmail.com. Currently, we're doing two episodes per month, and if we reach our goal of $300, we will start doing one episode per week. So if you like what we're doing, consider joining us at patreon.com forward slash embrace the void. As always, remember, you are the void, and the void is you. Thank you.